schönen guten Tag, herzlich willkommen. Hier ist 212, der Podcast aus New York, aus Amerika. Heute beschäftigen wir uns in der Folge Nummer 19 zum ersten Mal mit richtig guter Literatur. Über das, um was es geht, sagt jetzt Sebastian erstmal seinen Teil. Hallo Sebastian. Hallo. Ich finde, dass wir für unsere neue Folge einen ganz großen Glücksgriff getan haben. Und zwar hatten wir das Privileg, den New Yorker Autor, Star der New Yorker Literaturszene, Joshua Cohen ans Mikrofon zu, zu bringen. Wer Joshua Cohen nicht kennt, Joshua Cohen hat zwei äh, durchweg hochgelobte Romane vorgelegt in den letzten paar Jahren. Das erste war das Book of Numbers, das als sowas wie ähm, ein Schlüsselroman der Internetgeneration gehandelt wird. Und das zweite, das neueste Buch, das gerade ins Deutsche übersetzt worden ist und im Schöffling Verlag erschienen ist, nennt sich The Moving Kings und ist also ähnlich gut aufgenommen worden von der Kritik. Er ist also wirklich nicht nur irgendein junger, neuer Schriftsteller auf der New Yorker Szene, sondern er wird von allen ernsthaften Beobachtern als einer der zukünftig ganz Großen der amerikanischen Literatur gehandelt. Er wird also in einem Atemzug mit Leuten wie Thomas Pynchon oder Don DeLillo oder, wenn man ein Stückchen weiter zurückgeht, mit J.D. Salinger genannt. Also großes Privileg, mit so jemandem sprechen zu können. Mit einem amerikanischen Schriftsteller? der allerdings auch ganz ordentlich Deutsch kann. Dazu können wir gleich noch ein bisschen was sagen. Ja, als intensiver Sprachkünstler hat er sich einen Namen gemacht und das macht es auch faszinierend in der ähm, Unterhaltung, wo man genau zuhört, wo man Fragen auch genau daraufhin abzielt. Deshalb ist dieses Interview auch sehr viel reichhaltiger. Aber noch, dass wir über ganz viel über sein Leben mit ihm reden. Er hat als Journalist gearbeitet, als Reporter. Er hat Essays geschrieben. Er ist mit einem kritischen Geist ausgestattet, beschäftigt sich mit vielen Dingen. Das Einzige, das wenn wir dann am Schluss, wo er nicht so richtig mitziehen wollte, war, ich hätte ihn gerne dazu gebracht, auf seiner E-Gitarre uns was vorzuspielen. Da hat er sich dann geziert. Er hat bestimmte Qualitätsstandards, weil er weiß, dass er nicht so gut Gitarre spielt, lässt er das lieber sein. Es gibt unglaublich faszinierende Verstrebungen. Die Familie, er ist also der in New York, in, in Soho lebende Amerikaner, dessen jüdische Vorfahren zum einen Teil väterlicherseits aus Deutschland abstammen. Und darüber erzählt er uns noch ein bisschen. Und mütterlicherseits aus Ungarn, aufgewachsen in Atlantic City und dann eben rüber in die große Stadt. Und ähm, er hat Komposition an der Manhattan School of Music studiert. Wahrscheinlich hat er daher auch ja, Ansprüche entwickelt. Und ähm, er hat in Berlin gelebt und äh, hat sich eben auch Deutschland als Nachgeborener genauer angeschaut. Vielleicht noch eine ganz kurze selbstreferenzielle Fußnote. Ich fand das irgendwie so, so, ein, so einen ganz schönen Rückbezug für unseren Podcast, dass wir in unserer allerersten Folge ja Manny Kirchheimer interviewt haben, der ein ganz kleiner Junge aus Deutschland emigriert ist und nach New York gekommen ist. Und jetzt haben wir die Enkelgeneration, die zwei Generationen später, die Nachkommen von deutschen Juden, die nach New York ausgewandert sind und hier als Kulturschaffende tätig sind. Das fand ich also so ganz schöne, wie du sagst, Querverstrebungen und und, und Querverweis auf unsere ähm, bisherige Arbeit, wo so ein Faden auch ein bisschen weiter gesponnen wird. Es gibt so Parallelen, der kritische Geist dieser beiden, Manny Kirchheimer und Joshua Cohn, die sind durchaus miteinander verwandt. Der eine arbeitet halt mit Film und hier unser Interviewpartner diesmal arbeitet eben mit Wort hauptsächlich. 
Vielleicht noch eine Anmerkung. Wir haben Joshua in seinem Loft in, in Soho besucht. Da ist die Akustik nicht ganz so toll. Das versuchen wir irgendwie technisch einigermaßen aufzufangen. Man kann alles verstehen, aber es ist halt nicht die absolute Studioqualität. So ist nun mal das Leben, wenn man ambulant unterwegs ist als Podcaster. Fangen wir an? Ja, legen wir los. Prima. So, I think we can just easily start sure. the official part of the conversation. Okay. Um, just so that you are aware of... Uh, <laughs> Posterity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you just missed out on the Nobel Prize this year? I did. I made a lot of money on the Nobel Prize this year. How so? I, I put um, 400 pounds on Olga Tukarczuk. Uh -huh. And she had, I think she had closed at six to one. So there's a future in futures. I, I have won Nobel betting in some spread every year that I've ever bet, with the exception of Dylan. You did not bet on Dylan? No. A friend of mine did, just to kind of be an asshole and won an enormous amount of money. <laughs> so are these official bets? Are they like at OTB? Do they take Nobel Prize bets? Or? It's all... Well, they're not in the States. They, you can't bet, but it's all British, like Ladbrokes. Okay. But I think... Because a lot of people, because Dylan broke the bank and a lot of people actually made money on it. Uh -huh. Dylan, Ladbrokes didn't offer odds this year. Uh -huh. And you had to go with some other, like Unibet and uh -huh. some other uh -huh. Caribbean-based websites. Uh -huh. Okay, interesting. Yeah. You only bet on Nobel Prizes or you bet on sports as well? Mm, I don't bet on Nobel Prizes. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I, mean I, you know, I grew up in Atlantic City where it was, you know... Uh, I mean, I didn't. I didn't play the traditional table games. I mean, I'm like, like I'm not a blackjack player. I mean, you want to play games that you could possibly win, mm -hmm. or at least enjoy yourself. Doing. But I played poker for a while. And, mm. yeah. Could we um, at least address the fact that Handke won, and that you oh, have sure. maybe an opinion on on his writing, or is this uh, far fetched? Uh, no, I mean, I I, I I I wrote a the New York Times review of. I believe what was his last book translated into English, which was The Moravian Night, which I think is already now four years or something, maybe even more ago. And, you know, to have an opinion on Hanke's work is, is, is daunting, because what is it? It's easily over 100 books, right? Around mm -hmm. 100 books. Do I have an opinion about the... Uh, in a way, I only could condemn it if I took the Nobel Prize seriously, right? I mean, and as far as I'm concerned, the Nobel Prize is sort of on the same level as a friend telling me that they think Peter Hanke's work is valuable, regardless of his political beliefs. And I would probably listen to a friend when they said that, but I wouldn't take that as some sort of, you know, certification of, uh, of his moral rectitude, nor as some um, whitewashing or erasure of his past. So um, I think everything gets very crass when you talk about, you know, a writer's politics. If we had to pick, if there were two options, right? He was right or he was wrong. He's certainly wrong. But at the same time, uh, I don't think he has any concept of the power and the weight that his words had. Because I think that to continue to exist as a writer and to be creative as a writer, you sort of have to be very naive um, that anyone truly cares what you think. 
because I think if you begin thinking that people care what you think, you can become um, paralyzed. And I think that you know that's a classic trap for a writer to fall in. It's also a necessary condition of a writer's life. And I think that that Hanke, with his almost you know filial affection, like a son's affection for a dream Yugoslavia that didn't really ever exist, and a sort of purity of pre-technological, pre-Islamic presence, Europe, which is just a you know, which is an ahistorical fantasy, I think wasn't able to process it through the way most writers' problematic politics are processed, which is through, through fiction. I mean, I wonder what would happen if he created characters who had the same opinions that he did, you know, in a novel. And I wonder whether, um, how people would have read that and how he himself would have felt about the efficacy, say, of his expression. But... Um, you know, he's no Bob Dylan. <laughs> so you do or do not think that the writer and the work can or should be separated or discussed separately? Well, I just don't think, I just think that that's a, that, I think that's kind of a false problem. I mean, they will be. They will be discussed together. I mean, when you say you can't do it, the first thing people are going to do are like, well, let's oh, do, do it. it. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's more interesting actually to think about, you know, the, 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 the to, to understand someone's mind, however problematic it is. But again, I think it's also giving an enormous amount of weight to the Nobel Prize, which just routinely picks writers that I'm not interested in. You know, I mean, everyone has their list of the great writers who never got the Nobel Prize or the, the quote-unquote, you know, but, and, and then uh, uh, everyone has their list of neglected constituencies, you know, whether they're gender or race who didn't get the Nobel Prize. And then certainly everyone has their own personal list of their favorite writers, who never got the Nobel Prize. And ultimately, if you combine all of those lists together, it's far more impressive than any list that the Nobel Committee ever came up with on its own. One of the criteria is actually that you have to be alive. So, yeah. so for, for instance, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the German writer Uwe Jonsson. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. sure. So he died early. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the recognition that he might have uh, garnered in the international sphere and mm-hmm. outside of Germany wasn't there. Among the most recent examples of German-speaking literature, uh, you know, that's a, that's a failure not having um, awarded this guy for his work because the rules are the rules. I mean, right, but I mean, we also have, I mean, again, this is, I think this proves the point of we each have our personal canons. Like, if I, if I was going to give it to a late mid-century German, it would be Wolfgang Köppen. I would have given it to Bernhard over Jelinek. You know, I mean, but it's like at a certain point it becomes horse trading. You know, it's like get it to Zebold. You know, I, I, so I, I to segue this into talking about your work a little bit, your personal politics. How do they flow into your literature and the? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly, certainly not in the Hankian way of. Um, when I've accepted a you know nonfiction assignment and I worked as a journalist, and I've also kind of written longer nonfiction, I think that I never try and take any sides whatsoever. The idea that you would do the the Hankian thing of like, oh, you know, look, I I acknowledge this happened on this side, but do you know what happened on this side? And to seek these like moral equivalencies, I think that's the biggest trap of of remaining independent politically independent as a journalist to seek equivalencies which just can't exist because the world is you know full of things that don't equate and and 
and individuals and not sort of sums that can be balanced. So I think it's a very different answer for me, whether it's nonfiction or, or, or fiction. In nonfiction, it's sort of asking myself the most basic question, which is why the fuck would anyone be interested in politics in the first place? Like to go into politics, I mean, like mm-hmm. meeting any politician is it's just meeting a freak show. I mean, you know, even if they're and, and, and the, from the most well-meaning to the most nefarious, they they're they're all crazy. I mean, these are people who have because of some sense of civic duty that we're pretending isn't, you know, martyrdom or narcissism, um, have decided to open up every aspect of their lives to public consumption and of their families and of their friends uh, until the end of time. Why? You know, I can say for my, myself as a citizen, I'm not worth it. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not worth someone sacrificing their entire privacy. And, and also, I, I don't know that um, I've seen true sincerity and I'm always at a pains to um, differentiate it in a certain way from, like, from moralized narcissism. And so in the nonfiction sphere, it's, it's asking, why am I speaking with these people and why, why are these people in politics? Um, and that tends to become very quickly not about what my opinions are or you know, if I have any opinions or what I of mine is speaking with an opinion, and much more about listening to those people talk and seeing what they do. For fiction, I think I think that's harder to know because I think that those things are you know are kind of mysteries. You know, that's where like the politics kind of seep out in ways that you kind of don't expect. Yeah. Well, you talked about equivalencies. You've been accused of equating gentrification in New York with Israeli politics oh, I, lo- I love and, I love and, accused. And, and this, I wish this. I were important enough to be accused. Yeah, I would love to be accused. <laughs> what is a better word? You're the wordsmith. Type no, accused sounds great. I feel like I'm at the Hague. You know, I like it. I'm accused. Should get a, should get, should get a lawyer. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's more f- fair to say that, you know, literary critics who are at pains, a few literary critics who are at pains now to um, uh, separate their sphere from the political sphere in a world where, you know, it seems that politics is consistently encroaching on a purely cultural space, uh, decided to tell me their opinions about Israel. <laughs> That's better than accused. It's a longer verb, but, you know, yeah. Uh, but no, you're right. Yeah, they have, I've been accused. I stand accused. Yeah, yeah. So what would you reply to that accusation? Are you guilty as charged? I mean, I think that one of the big problems with the politicization of everything. And I do agree with a lot of these critics who are criticizing me because I think they're also criticizing a certain tendency that's very difficult to, 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 to work against, which is, you know, the politicization of absolutely every sphere of life, you know, like sort of like the, the, the ultimate Zizekian fantasy that we're all seeing our unconscious political biases reify in every tiny, you know, choice from a consumer decision to a choice of a verb or a noun. And we're becoming conscious of these things in this way that, 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 that can become, um, yeah, paralyzing. And so my answer is I'm as helpless as anyone else to resist that. But secondarily, I would also remind them that part of the problem with the politicization of everything is that they believe that comparisons become equivalencies without remembering that metaphors exist. You know, at no point did I mean this as, well, I love America and America evicts people, which is default in their you know, mortgages, that's totally legal. So Israel's justified in doing that. Nor am I saying that um, 
that Palestinians who become, you know, dispossessed from their lands are direct moral equivalents of a person who gets into a bad mortgage and can't make a payment. I mean, I'm not an idiot, but I do think that knowing the public, the quote unquote, knowing people in New York, America, and knowing people in Israel, I can tell you that there is an absolute blindness on both sides to what goes on on the in the other country. And so I kind of imagined it as, let's talk about Israel-Palestine for America, and let's talk about, you know, New York for, for, for Israel-Palestine. Can we separate this at least a little bit? I mean, today mm -hmm. we don't have enough time to really go into all the details, but it would be interesting. I mean, for instance, for us as Germans, when we approach a question like this, right, right. we are in a different position to talk about any of that, and we cannot just uh, uncouple us from historic responsibilities and burden. Um, when we talk with uh, Americans, or when Americans talk about this, it could be different. Do Americans have more leeway, more um, liberty, more uh, less sensitivities to, uh, to deal with, because they have become a harbor for Jewish people over time? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's the problem with 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 um, with using the words that I've you know that that we all use and trip us up a lot, trip me up a lot. I mean, you know, when you say these are subjects that are difficult for a you know German you know uh, uh, person to approach without acknowledging a historical continuum, you know, I, I you know, look, I've spent a lot of time in Germany. And, you know, I hear something like that all the time. And it, it's always the most honest and well-intentioned statement. I mean, right? But the distance between you uh, right now and the history of the 40s is the exact distance between me as an American and my family as Germans. And, you know, my family would have said something you know, at, during Weimar, uh, uh, up until I would say really like 36, you know, for one of them and the other one straight through when they came here of, you know, saying, well, we Germans have to think this certain thing in a way, you know, you have to acknowledge all histories. And so I think that, um, that in the way a person who, for example, lives in New York, whether or not they were born in New York, but, you know, spends years and years in New York, is much more a citizen of Paris or London than they are of, you know, Bakersfield, California. I think that we kind of have to acknowledge these, these strange dislocations. By the way, is Judeo-Christian, this phrase, an American invention uh, of a recent past um, where people try to basically rid themselves of their old anti-Semitic uh, impulses and now suddenly find uh, a term that can uh, construct um, a sentiment um, that didn't exist. Is that a global expression that was... Oh, I, I, I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's, I mean, it sounds like something America would come up with. Just stick two things together, you know, like a double whopper. Does it make like sense that. to you at all? Uh, no. I can see how it makes sense to certain people who would use it, whether they would use it in a, um, in a way to differentiate, you know, a non-Islamic 
monotheism from Asian cultures, for example, or or you know from 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 Hinduism um, as well. But I tend to think that that phrase is used in a way that you know not to deny an anti-Semitic uh, you know history, but actually to talk about something that I think misunderstands the, the, the complexity of the Jewish thinking about it, which is I think it's about people or cultures who believe in salvation, right? Who think that there is some ultimate something, whether it's, you know, some messianic thing or the end of the world, some apocalypse, but it's people who believe like we're going somewhere. And I think that that significantly distorts you know, a lot of Christian thinking, but it really very seriously, very, very seriously distorts a lot of Jewish thinking about eschatology or, you know, where, where this train is headed. So you think Jewish thinking is not teleological? That that's a... I mean, right, the, it's like the joke. Well, it is and it isn't. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would prefer the word that it's, it has a very complex... Um, um, relationship with um, with the eschatological, with the end of the world mm-hmm. and with life after death and with the idea of um, some end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the history of Jewish eschatology is the history of Jewish thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no. I need to okay. switch batteries. Yeah. It's a good time for you to hold your question and then... Als kleiner Service die interessanteste Textpassage aus dem, was Joshua Cohn für die New York Times über die Moravische Nacht von Peter Handke geschrieben hat. Diese Buchkritik erschien am 30. Dezember 2016. Das Original, das Handke-Original, war 2008 erschienen. Es brauchte acht Jahre, bis die englische Ausgabe fertig war. Hier also Cohn über Handke. Peter Handke beherrscht einen der großen deutschsprachigen Prosastile der Nachkriegszeit, eine flusshafte Rhetorik, die tief und schnell ist und gegen die Strömung hält. Seit dem Erscheinen des ersten von rund 100 Büchern über Belletristik, Poesie, Essays und Theaterstücke im Jahr 1966 ist sein Talent unbestreitbar, aber es ist eines, das sich fast ausschließlich in der Ästhetik erschöpft. Niemand hat Handke jemals wegen seiner Ideen gelesen, sondern wegen seiner Feindseligkeit gegenüber Ideen, wegen seiner zweideutigen Pronomen, seiner zweideutigen Interpunktion und seines gereizten didaktischen Umgangs mit Provokation. So I was saying that one of the things about Handke that 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 was a newer thought of mine, you know, I mean, because I certainly I didn't just start thinking about Handke when the Swedes decided to care about him is um You know, he's absolutely a pig-headed and fucked-up guy. But then I see the Twitter reaction, right? Um, and people being so angry who know so little of any facts. And when I say any facts, I mean the correct facts. Not Hanke's facts, but like 
the correct facts, that after a while it all just looks like a world of screaming to me. That was kind of interesting. I mean, at least, again, when Bob Dylan won, people could argue about what their favorite song was. These were people who didn't even know the names of books, mm -hmm. or actually some of them probably didn't know the constituent states of Yugoslavia. But I came up with a Twitter statement, the left-handed Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in what way of left? Because, you know, that has a lot of... One of his famous yeah. pieces of work, right? Sure, a sure. Woman. And, and it turned sure. into a very bad movie that he did himself. Um, I thought, you know, when we... Did, when we in German, we use linkshandig, left Yeah, 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 also yeah sure. mean like... Malevolent. Well, oh. and, and kind of, you know, not very serious, not very, not very mm -hmm. solid, not very strong. Like, you know, like it's throwing it out there. Yeah. Right? That's why I wanted to... I thought it was, <laughs> it was like the Nobel won by a penalty kick. <laughs> because of the fear of the yeah the goalkeeper because of the fear of the goalkeeper yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay turn back to Jewish thinking and teleology okay, okay. <laughs> sure it's easier yeah. what what role does Jewish thinking play in playing your work I mean I know that's a very broad question but the book of book of numbers has a theological yeah I mean these foundation. were just these were just yeah I don't know think about it's theology I just think it's it's the pattern of the stories when you hear stories when you're a kid. You know, when you constantly hear them. And then every year, you sort of hear them at like another level of complexity. You kind of, you know, their stories first, and you think that they're stories, and then you're kind of told that there's some, you know, allegory or there's some parable, parabolic nature to them. And then, you, you know, that, that's the entire arc of the education is from, you know, the story to the mystical. And so... I just think those, the, not just the stories themselves, but like that path is so ingrained in the way I think that it's just un, unavoidable. They're, they're sort of patterns that I, and I'm somewhat embarrassed by because they're just patterns that I just go mm. back to. Can you talk about your, 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 your Jewish education? Was it a very... I thought you were going to say you talk about my embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, my Jewish uh, education, yeah, sure. It was uh, at the, uh, the Hebrew Academy of Atlanta County on a tiny island that everyone calls Atlantic City, but it's actually called Epsikan Island. It has four towns on it. It was uh, a tiny uh, red brick school that I think now is an um, old age home, I think, and uh, on Jerome Avenue. And um, uh, run by, you know, Rabbi Mordechai Weiss and, you know, some of the brightest minds of imported from Lakewood, New Jersey. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, it was a traditional yeshiva education. I mean, it was school. Nobody likes school. You know, maybe some. Well, and you say what stuck with you is the shape of the, of the stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So would you say... Um, the shape of the story is in the way of thinking through a story. So thinking through a story. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, just, the, just that, that apparatus that you're sort of inculcated with very young, which is when you, you read a story and then you're told immediately, it's not a story, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like they give you a story and then they take it away. They say, it's not a story. This represents this. This represents this. This represents this. Okay. And then, um, oh, but no, but this person says, actually, this represents that and this represents that. But what's important what's what's crucial in that is the initial sort of betrayal and skepticism that 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 you develop because of almost that betrayal of like here's a story oh it's not a story and so then you become doubtful of sort of any story you know it can't really be that there has to be an entire 
network of, of, of signifiers underlying it. You would think that would discourage someone from wanting to tell stories themselves, but it was the opposite for you. For you. Well, I think it, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it does discourage, it has discouraged me in a way that I, 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 I don't like um, from, you know, as many, I think, readers would say, just telling a fucking story. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I would love, um, I mean, some of the, the, and I'm not saying that these in any way is, is you, you know, less complex or less complicated at all, the, the just telling a story. I mean, I think that there's an amazing art to it. And certainly there's a way of telling a story that buries a lot of the simplicity of it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the difficulty of it uh, under a very simple surface. And um, I don't think I, I learned how to do that. I think that's very, I mean, I'm kind of pushing my way toward that. But I think that's, 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 that's pretty complicated. So you can't just tell a fucking story. It's, it's impossible for you. I, I wish. I mean, I, 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 I get to a certain point, I think, in, in everything where I say, okay, this is a story. And then it's like, well, you know, what's next? And, and, and truthfully, I think that the great stories that I know, at least, that are pure stories are, you know, in the, in the Benjamin sense, right? In the world of Benjamin sense of like a storyteller of stories, which would be, his name would be like Leskov. And, you know, my name would be someone like Hrabal, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just pure storytelling. That, you know, that um, I always become a little too interested in the person telling it. I would like to find drawers for mm-hmm. you and how we can perceive you. And mm-hmm. if you reject them, then that's fine too. Okay. So earlier in our conversation, we talked about how you have done nonfiction work, including reviewing a Huntkin book, and you've done other. Which I I I had I had I can't I I, I had all of my stack of every kind of journalism reportage essays, everything that I had just kind of ever done, which really scared me to. I was putting together this nonfiction collection that came out in, in English last year. And I was looking through all of them and kind of saying, you know, what do I want to have in this? What do I, what do I not? And I had the Hanke thing, which was actually written, which was longer at the time. And, and I didn't put it in. And I didn't put it in because um, I didn't put it in because I didn't like the book. So that was for the forward when you were working for the forward? No, that was for the, oh, what, when I printed all that stuff out? Or what, when the you Hanke? reviewed Hanke? Oh, for oh. the New York Times. That was the Times a couple years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, drawers. Yeah. Um, so you've done different things, and yeah. that includes even publishing nonfiction mm-hmm. in a book format. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, I think we need to perceive you more or less as a fiction writer. Um, even though you might have different talents and you would, wouldn't want to be nailed to any of these categories. Since you are a younger mm-hmm. writer, do you think you're on your way to find one particular avenue and whatever you've done so far is basically uh, part of the search? Or will you keep on writing on different tracks and trails and, and because that's how, how you perceive the world and that's how you want to express yourself no I got to pay for windows I got to pay for some windows so you know uh, that's what a lot of the nonfiction is window payments you know uh, uh, I think that uh, Not uh, passion. Uh, look I mean I only take work that I, I, I believe in and I do have I've had that luxury but that means I have to work a lot luckily I can convince myself I'm passionate about a lot. 
but um, it's always been the most important thing to me to not teach full-time and to not go into academia and to be in the world in some way uh, as a way to survive. But I do see the nonfiction as, as, as practical mm-hmm. and, you know, in the way that I think anyone who does work likes to be proud of their work and their work done well. That's my relationship with the nonfiction. But yeah, no, I, I see myself absolutely as a, as a fiction writer. And I see that that's, you know, where I feel most free and that's also where where my interest lies. You know, you just have to make some money doing it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for wait for Stockholm to call me. But but uh, but I but I, I see myself as a fiction writer. But I also am very cognizant of the pitfalls of spending all of one's life and time writing fiction. It's not that it's tunnel vision. It's, tunnel vision, I think, is it, it could be could be some of it. I just think that it's it's not all going to be what you want it to be. And I admire people who struggle through periods of, um, of silence, just like I admire people who struggle through periods of, you know, a, a, a lack of spark or a lack of passion through diligently applying themselves. I truly don't think, for example, I, mean, I was thinking about him a lot, you know, yesterday and, and, and today because Harold Bloom died. Oh, he did. I didn't. Yeah, notice. yeah, he died yesterday. And he oh, was, he did. Yeah, and he was. I mean, he was. He was very kind to me and a very lovely man. And I, I did a. Did you study um, with him at Yale? No, no, no. He just. He wrote. I'm the last writer he he wrote about. I'm the last chapter of his last book. Oh my goodness! I know. <laughs> that's that's a, so, that's a that's a good list to be on, I guess. Well, and so I I you know, but I was thinking about. I would talk to him a lot about. Um you know, all of his friends have been dying, right? This happens when you get to a certain age, just the world just sort of thins out. Mm-hmm. So after Roth died, you know, I was talking to him about, about Roth. And one of the interesting things to me is, is that, um, we, you know, we were talking of Roth's, about Roth's books of the 70s and, you know, early 80s, which was a decade where he was sort of all over the map. I mean, there was everything from The Breast and Our Gang and, you know, and, um, and books that... Um, that weren't by my lights and by the lights of a number of people, not his great books. But, you know, but the idea is, should he have sat around and not done anything for a decade? Or was writing those books in some way necessary to that amazing explosion of the 90s, where just every few years he published a masterpiece? I sort of believe that... that you know, Harold convinced me in, in a way of, there's a way of churning ideas around in you and making things that are preparatory. But you have to go through that process of like not just making them, but also submitting them to scrutiny and accepting people's compromises with you and your own shame and then coming through it and, and making something. And so I, I again, like I, I, so while I see myself as a fiction writer and I'm also aware of, the difficulties or the, the perils of calling oneself that, I think that uh, uh, that model that 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 Harold kind of sketched out of Roth really resonates. So we haven't talked about your work very much yet. I guess that the book of the book of numbers has mm-hmm. has been has been called by some people as a kind of a quintessential novel for the. For the internet age or a key novel, God, that's like for, the, for a know, generation. How do you feel about labels like labels it's like, like the that? best horse for the age of the automobile? <laughs> you know, I mean, 
<laughs> you know, sure. It sounds like marketing speak. I don't know. Uh-huh. It's very nice. I, 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 uh, I mean. But it doesn't pay for the windows, right? No, no, it's pay for windows. Mm-hmm. But you know that book, I think, hit a certain anxiety at the moment, and at the moment that it, kind of, it was published in the states in 2015. I mean, obviously, it's a book about the internet, but more in my mind, it's a repository of all the things that the internet takes away. You know, I see it as like a, a more of a memory book than a future book. Mm-hmm. But when you say takes away, can you elaborate a little on what that means? Just uh, it's sure. I mean, I, I kind of don't mean it in the basic way that most people would say. So you know, like that it ruins institutions of our free press and and the pleasure of. Um, finding an unreviewed restaurant. I'm saying that it, 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 that sense of privacy and of being disconnected and of being truly unseen and, and un, un, unheard. And, um, you know, the, there, there's so much talk about the empowerment of being given a voice by the internet, right? And that was all of the, the talk. And I want to call, you know, some of it being propaganda And some of it being, I, I think, genuinely felt, but um, but I think that um, that I was more interested in the disempowerment um, that the internet was 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 bringing. The way that it 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 it, it stripped us of our, um, you know, of our the privacy, the dignity of our privacy, and also our um, sense of being determinative actors in our lives, whether that, that's like in the life of a you know, nation or just in your own small personal life. Do you think it's disempowered novelists? I mean, no, in a sense, because it's a subject. No subjects, I think, are disempowering, but I, I think it's disempowered everyone as people. You can write a lot of books about the internet. You can make a lot of apps You can make a lot of money on the internet, but you're, you could still be disempowered as a soul, right? You can still be kind of reduced. Uh, I guess to re- rephrase that question a little bit, um, how, how has it changed the role of the novel uh, between, say, 1972 and, 20 <laughs> right. and 2012? I, I don't know how it's changed everyone's novel. No idea. Like, I, you know, we're talking now, people I know are, you know, going to the Frankfurt Book Fair, Right, and the book mess, and I, I love the idea that that thing still exists. It's just like literally, this was like a thing that came out of like a medieval, like come to the fair, bring your bring your horses to market, and it's now everything there is like sold weeks before on, on, with the internet, like online. But how it's so I can answer how it's changed the novel for me, which is that I think it 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 I'm hoping, and I feel that it gives the the novel a secret power. Because it's kind of something that it can't be, the value can't be extracted from, and value is such a cross word, but a value can't be extracted from a novel unless you submit to it and live it. And so there's all of this potential power in these books that, um, that will always reside there and maybe will even increase in power uh, through their neglect. And so, you know, I'm always interested in sort of the hidden tradition or the mystery that gets stronger as it becomes more neglected. So how did you get from thinking about that to mm-hmm. thinking about 
people getting evicted in, in New York City. <laughs> I thought sort of that the book, like the novel, um, one of the things that the internet absolutely did was take this sectarian battlefields, which now, except for some of the most dangerous parts of the world, aren't on the ground, but are virtual, right? And all of these sort of identity battles for conscience, right? Or for, like, or for the soul of a country, however you want to phrase it. The meaning of Europe or for, you know, the meaning of Europe, stuff like, right? And so I kind of thought that what if I kind of treated a novel where, you know, let's just say it's a book of empty pages, just this book without any words on them. And then there were factions fighting to take over the pages and to constantly sort of knock each other out and uh, uh, evict each other. And so I kind of saw a book like that where it was these seizures of space or seizures of attention span where, you know, it's suddenly all the eyeballs look over here. And, and then really, you know, seeing Occupy and where that went. I mean, that was just right down here, so I would walk down all the time to Zuccotti Park. And seeing that daily contrast between the people in the park and Wall Street, which is, you know, next door, and, and, uh, and the police, and then watching evictions in, 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 in parts of the city. I mean, it's just the thing with any city. It's that uh, 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 worlds happen there and you, people don't know. And one of the things with going to the internet, like technologies that scale like that, is that I'm not sure more things are happening in the world than ever. We just know about almost all of them, if you want to, or a lot of them. And so I wanted to also have a, a book where when people were sort of fighting each other for space, they were also, once they had that space, they were just screaming into it. And uh, yeah, so that's that's how I how I saw that. I came to think about New York City. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but there's a step that you might want to take with you back because you start in Atlantic City and then you come to New York deliberately by choice. Well, we had a lot of family, and then I was doing school here. Um, but yeah, yeah. But, I mean, with the kind of choice that you make when you're 16 and your parents tell you not to. No, they just, no, not, not, not to, but it's just, you know, I didn't really know that I could do other things. Like, I didn't know what else there was to do. But can you place yourself back when you described your school days on the island with a different name? Well, how, in the distance, how New York looked for you, um, filtered through visits, uh, television, whatever tools or, 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 or media you had, and, and how it then became real when you entered it and how it might have changed your understanding of... Well, I mean, look, I mean, Atlantic City is a, a ruined city and it's, it's, there's a boardwalk, a wooden street that separates a beauty that really can not be destroyed, right? I mean, you can't just, you can kill everything in the ocean, but you can't get rid of the ocean, you know? And uh, in fact, it's just coming higher, right? Uh, so you have on one side this beach and you have this ocean that's just sort of eternal. You know, it's that old Burt Lancaster. The Louis Mal. Yeah, you should have seen the Atlantic Ocean when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then on the other side is just the, the ugliest, crassest casino universe. It's a huge population in summer. 
and then a very tiny population in winter. So for me, New Yorkers, like Philadelphians, people from Philadelphia, were the people who just come down to the shore for the summer and trash the place even more than leave. That said, you know, we had a lot of family up here. Um, family, when they came to the States, New York was always the place where they wanted to be resettled, but they went and they were here very briefly, but then they were basically resettled in farms in Southern New Jersey, in Cumberland County, where the, the blueberries come from. Mm -hmm. So it was and fruits and produce or? Chicken farming. Violin poultry was the, uh, the, the, the um, um, and fishing. Can you refresh um, us a bit about, on your family history? When, mm -hmm. when they... my, uh, my father's mother, uh, uh, Doris Meyer, uh, was uh, from Cologne. And uh, her father, Max Meyer, he, you know um, Giza, the cigarette papers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, that was his, that was his uh, uh, one of his, his, his factories. I think it's now a Spanish company. He printed the, uh, like this as an advertisement for Giza cigarette papers. He printed in Cologne in the 20s the smallest Quran ever printed. Because, you know, it was like all Egypt and the pyramids and this. He printed them with cigarette papers, the tiniest Quran that's in the museum. Um, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, so they left this behind when they left Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they thought they, they were, they were um, highly, highly, highly assimilated and well no and they thought that you know i mean they, they came i mean she was on um a boat from portugal in 41 oh, very late. which is like very i think it was like the second or third like so you know, where did boat. they where did they uh spend the time until then in, in, in uh, france or hiding in france and then i think in um and then i i think kind of going through spain well she did my, my grandmother did her sister was on a kinder transport and then was somewhere in the north of, of, of England and then came a little bit later. Uh, my mother's side, they're all uh, like uh, uh, Hungarian Hasidim who went through the war um, from a town. Actually, the, uh, that's the first airmail stamp from a town uh, uh, called Sáros-Patok, which is, is sort of, uh, you know, on the Hungarian side of the Hungarian-Slovak-Ukrainian borders where they kind of all come, come together. And they were all, yeah, they were all Hasidim. And they were these kind of two very, you know, educated and wealthy, uh, formerly wealthy, you know, German families that um, were only in New York very briefly. And then um, were sort of like, oh, you know, go live in, in Jersey. And so growing up with that idea of like, you know, New York was like, And then they acted as if they could never move back. Like, all they had to do was find a park. But, you know, like, it was like, you know, they put us here. And it's like, well, you just get on a bus, but, you know, or train, you know, but they... And, and so I think that was deeply ingrained, was like, you know, New York was the place to go back to. Mm -hmm. And certainly that was true for my aunt, who lives upstairs, who was their um, eldest daughter, uh, Maxie, and, you know, my father and, um, and my uncle both kind of stayed there around the fishing business. Does it interest you at all to use your family history in a literary way as material? I mean, I've read all those. There's a, good, there a lot of good books like that. I don't need to, yeah. Add, add another one. Yeah. But when you lived in Germany, mm -hmm. for how long? Mm, off and on for two and a half years, maybe three years. I was, and then, I, yeah, yeah. 
did you feel the urge to go visit places that might tell you something about your family history or did you stay away? I mean, Germany just looks so different now. I went to their um, house, which, oh God, I wish I, I wish I knew the address, but it's the Gesellschaft des Wissenschaftsrates, mm -hmm. right? It's like the Atomic Energy something committee. <laughs> so their house in Cologne was uh, Gestapo headquarters and then became the atomic energy or whatever, you know, the, the, some scientific thing that uh, I went to, I remember, with my, with my father, which was interesting because it was like you had to get every sort of, you had to submit your passport, you had to give a reason why you wanted to visit and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, my father had largely done a lot of that stuff, so I kind of stayed away from that side of it. Because my father worked at, um, at the successor to Giza uh, with his cousin Mark and cousin David in the 70s and had spent a lot of time there in the 70s. And like, you know, that was his whole story about like hanging out in Cologne in the 70s. And it was like, you know, you never want to do what your dad did. And, and truthfully, because of the nature of my work, I mean, I lived in Berlin because, I mean, it was probably stupid to live in Berlin because the transportation links them were even worse than they are now. And you know, most of my work was for the forward in Eastern Europe. And a lot of it was in Poland, and I didn't want to live in Poland. No, because Berlin was more fun. I mean, not because, right. And, um, and if I wanted to get to Warsaw and I had to report it, Pete, like you get there very easily. But so most of the time I spent kind of looking after that stuff was looking after my mom's, my mother's side, because, you know, Shadowspot talking Eastern Hungary, uh, Carpathians, you know, down into Rom Romania, like that, that looks like it used to look in a lot of ways. And also it was just a, part that no one had been able to go back to, just, you know, politically and, and spend time there. And so I spent a lot of time both reporting and doing journalism work, but also just kind of walking around that part. And a lot of that is in Witz. Yeah. So how was it for you as a young American Jew to live in Germany in the early 2000s, I guess? I mean, look, Germany was great compared uh -huh. to, you know, I mean, Germany was, uh -huh. I mean, Germany, Berlin, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I mean, like, it's like, you know, it's not, I wasn't living in, you know, Dresden or something, or worse, I wasn't living outside of this. I remember really well, you know, crossing, because I would cross that border a lot, the Czech border, and kind of seeing, Taking you know, the train, taking the car? Taking a train, taking a train. Towards Prague? Towards Prague, yeah, or, or going on to Brno or something like that. And that wasn't the Germany I was living in. You know, I wasn't living in, like, Sudeten Germany. You know, yeah, I mean, what was Berlin like? Berlin was... The problem with Berlin is that it, 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 compared to New York, it's an easy place to live. Right. That's the problem. So the brother, and this is a long story, but, like, the, the, so my family was part of the Schorsch family. So, you know, Ismar Schorsch. Uh, and then his father was the his father was the chief rabbi of Hanover, and so Ismar's son Jonathan Schorsch is the person who set up the um, the first like smicha like rabbinical training school in Germany, I think since the wars in Potsdam. I wasn't interested in that kind of you know techelas like celebration of Jewish revived Jewish culture, the Jewish museum world of stuff that that was happening at that time. Because it was the same shit that was happening here uh, on the Lower East Side. And it was all about gentrification. It was like, let's open a pickle place where instead of pickles costing 75 cents, the 50 cents are going to cost $6. You know? So it, like, to me, it was just like, yeah. It was, it was just, you know, it, it was well-intentioned maybe, but it just wasn't. And then it was additionally complicated in Germany because at least here, not at least, but here they were doing it really 
as a way of gentrifying a neighborhood, right? Whereas in Germany, because of just the, the, the state subvention and, you know, state, state support for so many things, I mean, it had that, that, that official tone to it. But however much I, I was ironic about it or it was easy to be cynical about it, still compared to what Hungary was like then or what Poland was like then or what um, Lithuania and Latvia was, I mean, you know, those were places where I had problems, and uh, and those were some of those places were a little were a little scary, yeah. Problems. Yeah, I mean, I think the only time I really got the shit kicked out of me was in uh, um, Panerai, the the the, the um, like a not even a camp, it was like an execution field uh, uh, in Lithuania. You know, I was doing a story there. I think they were actually like moving some part of a monument, like moving a grave, mass grave or something to like build something there. I can't, I can't remember the exact story. And, uh, uh, But they didn't want you around, to be around? No, 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 no. That was what those places are. I mean, there's a big difference between going to Dachau or even Auschwitz and going to like Sobibor, which is just a field, right? And, and then there's a huge difference between like, you know, going to a museum somewhere you know, in a city, um, even a city like Vilnius, and then, you know, kind of going out to the woods. There were also a lot of things that you had to be really sympathetic to. I mean, you know, the, the only time that an American journalist, an English-speaking journalist ever shows up in their town, you're going to write a negative story about how you're moving a 17th century cemetery to build an ice hockey stadium. And you're talking to a mayor who, like, just got state support to build this fucking ice hockey thing. This is the cornerstone of his existence. I mean, so you understand the, the kind of pressures involved. And It, it wasn't all oppositional, without a doubt, but it also was, it was an interesting and, and, and tense, you know, situation at times. You literally got the shit kicked out of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And your glasses were broken? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I always have another pair of glasses. That wasn't the... Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was more like... Uh, I will say, the quality of... of, of medical care in Vilnius better than the quality of medical care I probably would have received here and brought to yeah. yeah but uh, uh, or maybe they just put me in like the you know the foreign journalist ward or something but those were also places that were really really grappling with privatization and and you know this was 2001 2002 right there was an entire generation that felt that had missed out on that first wave of kind of post-communist boom. These places were fairly stagnant and resentful, right? If you don't have anything... Do you know what time it is, actually? Sorry. No, it's it's one o'clock. It's past okay. one. We should okay. probably wrap, probably wrap yeah, up. But, yeah. um, because I'm looking at those guitars and mm -hmm. these amplifiers yeah. all the time, and I think I cannot leave without asking you, what's this? This this is this is a 1972 Vox tube amp that sounds fucking amazing. But the guitars. That is a 1969 Fender Stratocaster that belonged to a guy who knew. It's a long story. This guy named Tony Mario who played guitar at the casinos in Atlantic City. 
But what are you doing with these things? Well, he died. No, what? No. <laughs> but gave them to me. You, you played them, or... I fuck around on them a little bit, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Could you do it for us, just like... Uh, I'm not going to record me playing. Just warming up a no, few licks. No, man, no, we'll no. But well, you're more than welcome to check out the guitar. You can play it. No, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to You're more than welcome to do it. I don't it. touch anybody's no, guitar. No, I mean, like, there are so many people who really know. I mean, I, really, I mean, I play piano as well. I play a bunch of other things, and it's like, there are people who really know how to play. And when you really know, really know how to play, like, you don't want to go on record fucking playing. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know. What you're saying is you're, you're dabbling or, or you're good. I'm saying that I know what good playing is and I know that I shouldn't be recording. I mean, I'd be putting out albums if I like thought I was good enough to record, you know. <laughs> That's not where you are. It's not where, uh, not where I'm in my head right now. So no. I cannot even entice you to no. play a solo for our no. theme music? No, because I'm sure you can you throw a stone outside your house and you could probably hit like 10 guitar players who are better. <laughs> Sorry, but you're more than welcome to check it out. You're more than welcome to play it. <laughs> okay. you know? uh, so just, just one... One last question mm -hmm. besides writing stuff mm -hmm. that pays for the windows. Can you talk about what you're, what you're working on, or would you rather not at this point? I'm just working on another novel, and, uh, you know, keeping, keeping my head down. I don't know. Um, yeah, mm. just another novel. Mm. I mean, it's, I'm not, if I knew what it was about, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's like four novels that are beating each other up to become one. We'll see. We'll see competition for space again for the pages. It's a, com pages. It's a competition. Are you still in the early phase or in the in the rewriting phase? Oh, I mean, I'm always, you know, in every phase. I mean, I have, I have four novels that are, in that are drafted from the beginning to the end, but it's like uh, in the same way I won't play guitar. I'm not going to publish them. So I'm trying to. I'm finding how. I like parts of each, and they all come from the same impulse, and I'm trying to make them all kind of live together in a you certain said, way. You said some, somewhere, I don't remember where, you believe in, in rewriting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I try not to even remember what the writing is. I try to write it, you know, very, very quickly and forget about it, and then suddenly, oh, I have material that I can play with. And, you know, I, I also want to, what's the word? I also want to figure out how to do something new that engages me. And, uh, and, and I think that like, you know, there was a certain learning curve of, okay, this is how a novel is made. But um, I think that the sort of continued reproduction of novels with the same shapes and the same forms and the same whatever, it just doesn't necessarily interest me. And I'm trying to find ways that, that I don't have to do all of the things in a novel that I don't like to do in life, all of the horribly practical things. What a wonderful way to finish this, you know, kind of wrap, wrap it up. Thank you so, so much. Maybe you can do us one favor. You know, we would like to record the three of us in a photo. Okay. Sure. Uh, maybe in front of your sure. amazing collection of books. Or sure. You're not interested in it? Uh, sure, I guess not, can do that. Not interested in it. Nachdem wir mehr als eine Stunde zusammengesessen haben in diesem riesigen Loft in Soho, haben wir das Aufnahmegerät ausgestaltet, aber noch ein paar Dinge kurz uns erklären lassen. Das eine war die Beziehung zu Philip Roth, dem Schriftsteller, der erst vor kurzem gestorben ist. Da stellt sich raus, dass Joshua Cohn den so gut kannte oder auch seine 
Erben, dass er heute Besitzer des Schreibtischstuhls von Philip Roth ist. In dieser Wohnung, über die er gesagt hatte, dass ähm, er da die Fenster reparieren lassen muss dann und wann, weil die sind alt und äh, das ist ein altes Gebäude, ein altes, äh, in, zu Wohnzwecken umgebautes, klassisches Soho-Lagerhaus. Im Gespräch klingt das ja an, dass er Geld zusammenkratzen muss für Fenster. Ähm, mit anderen Worten, er hat da auch Eigentum inzwischen in New York. Details kennen wir nicht, aber das nur zur Erklärung. Und dann haben wir noch etwas anderes, das konnten wir auch nicht so gut äh, ausarbeiten. Sebastian Harold Bloom, der hier erwähnt wird, da gibt es nochmal eine besondere Beziehung. Ich glaube, der Kontakt zwischen Joshua Cohen und Philip Roth, der kam über Harold Bloom. Wir haben ja kurz über Harold Bloom gesprochen, weil der an dem Tag vor unserem Interview gestorben ist und weil das Letzte, was Harold Bloom geschrieben hat, quasi ein Aufsatz über Joshua Cohen ist. Und Harold Bloom ist Literaturprofessor in, an der Yale-Universität und an der New York University, die nur ein paar Schritte von Joshua Cohens Wohnung entfernt ist. Und er gilt in der akademischen amerikanischen Literaturkritik als der große Donjon, als derjenige, der definiert, was der Kanon der englischsprachigen Literatur ist. Und das heißt also, wenn ähm, Harold Bloom einem Schriftsteller einen Aufsatz äh, widmet, dann bedeutet das, dass man sozusagen in den Pantheon der englischsprachigen Literatur aufgenommen worden ist. Äh, das war also dann für Joshua Cohen wirklich so ein so ein großer Ritterschlag. Ist ja auch ganz witzig, dass er sich dann jetzt auf den Schreibtischstuhl von Philip Roth setzt. Das ist ja fast so, als als ob er diese Würdigung jetzt auch annimmt und sich selber ähm, jetzt mittlerweile auch so versteht, dass er zu dieser Gruppe dazugehört. Noch vielleicht eine ganz, ganz kurze Anmerkung, weil wir ja auch viel über den Literaturnobelpreis ges gesprochen haben. Philip Roth ist ja der große amerikanische Schriftsteller, der niemals den Nobelpreis bekommen hat. Ne? Das ist also noch so eine Verbindung zu unserem Gespräch. Es gab übrigens noch eine Besonderheit, die habe ich jetzt in der Nachbearbeitung gefunden. Dieses, diese Beziehung zwischen Bloom und Cohen wurde auch durch ein Interview, das die beiden miteinander geführt haben, Cohen als der Fragesteller, Bloom als der Antwortgeber, dokumentiert, das in der Los Angeles Book Review erschienen ist. Da gibt uns Bloom ganz kompakt seine Einschätzung von Cohen und die ist wirklich beeindruckend. Harold Bloom sagt in dem Interview mit Joshua Cohen, Buch der Zahlen des Book of Numbers ist umwerfend eindringlich. Mir fällt nichts von irgendjemand anderem in deiner Generation ein, das so erschreckend relevant ist und mit so viel durchgängiger Eloquenz komponiert. Also haben wir heute eine Tour d'Horizon durch äh, angloamerikanisches äh, ja, englischsprachige Literatur gemacht. Harold Bloom tauchte auf Joshua Cohen tauchte auf, ein Mann namens Peter Handke tauchte auf und ähm, so kann man manchmal in New York die ganze Welt in einen klitzekleinen Rahmen zusammenbauen und das Gefühl entwickeln, dass man am Puls der Zeit ist. Das wollten wir heute einmal mehr demonstrieren. Herzlichen Dank fürs Zuhören. Sebastian, demnächst musst du dann vielleicht doch einen Nobelpreisträger auftreiben. Wir müssen ja steigern. 
<lacht> ja, das wird, das wird hart, das wird schwer. Ich möchte noch ganz kurz mich beim Schöffling Verlag in Frankfurt bedanken, der diesen Kontakt hergestellt hat. Das ist der deutsche Verlag von äh, Joshua Cohen, der auch sein jüngstes Buch auf Deutsch rausgebracht hat. Das heißt auf Deutsch Auftrag für die Moving Kings. Und natürlich möchte ich unsere Hörer dazu ermutigen, sich das Buch zu besorgen und es zu lesen. Ja, Josh, auf Deutsch oder auf Englisch ist wirklich ein Genuss. Also, viel Spaß mit Joshua, den Moving Kings, mit den Zahlen, The Book of Numbers und ähm, mit vielleicht auch mit uns wieder beim nächsten Mal. Macht's gut. Ja, tschüss. <lacht> <lacht>